0: This is a podcast from 3RR102.7FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and it is so good to be back after a week away while Mia Timpano crushed it with a special episode on Long Form Journals. And I'm very much looking forward to the guests on today's show. Later in the hour, the Small Press Network are hosting a three-day publishing conference with sessions ranging from publishing in the age of Trump to podcasts and Amazon's disruption of the book industry, which is definitely something of a heated topic. Uh, one I'm looking forward to getting stuck into with the crew from the Small Press Network. In fact, I'll have General Manager Tim Coronel joining me to chat about the event, along with keynote speaker, copyright expert, Dr Rebecca Giblin. I'm also kind of nerdily excited to talk about copyright. It's just a thing that I feel like we don't talk about enough. Perhaps some people feel like I talk about it too much. That is definitely their problem. Um, But we'll be hearing more about that uh, coming up later in the hour. But, something super exciting for me, very, very soon, she is the award-winning author of four previous novels. I actually had to count because uh, I didn't realise there were quite so many. Uh, Including the 2017 Voss Literary Award shortlisted Our Tiny Useless Hearts, Romantic Farce and Comedy of Manners. Her fifth and latest book, The Fragments, unravels the mystery of a famous author – A Tragic Death, a lost manuscript and a love story ranging from 1930s New York to 1980s Brisbane. Author Tony Jordan, also my very dear friend, will join me to discuss this love letter to book lovers and the craft behind it. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Backstory Uh, on 3 triple I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm going to be introducing a guest very shortly that I'm super excited uh, to talk to But first, what would you do to piece together a long unsolved mystery, especially one involving a book written in the 1930s, pieces of which are tantalisingly offered as fragments of an unseen whole and kept, displayed as relics of a great artist killed in a deliberately lit fire that destroyed her long-awaited second novel. It's 1980s Brisbane and bookseller Inga Carlson obsessive... uh, Sorry, it's a a bookseller and, um, and Inga Carlson obsessive Caddy Walker. I'm so excited, I'm just stumbling over everything. She's offered a tantalising clue that may lead her to find out more about the death of the elusive Carlson, and perhaps even piece together more of the fragments of her lost manuscript. This is the premise for the latest book by best-selling novelist and my very good friend, Tony Jordan who I'm sure is enjoying me stumble through that introduction. Uh, She joins me in the studio now. Tony welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me Mel. I am so excited to talk to you about this book Tony because we have known each other for quite a while. So Um, This is true. I've watched you go through many many books that are really you know have that kind of inimitable element of yours of you know really kind of humorous tone and incredible sort of um, perceptive sort of notions of how you know I guess comedies of manners is really what I'm trying to get at. This book though goes in a slightly different direction and I really want to discuss some of that so, so let's talk about The Fragments. Where did it come from Tony?
2: Well I think that I as I get more and more along this kind of writing tract i I'm finding myself falling even more in love with books than I was at the beginning. I mean, we first met in a creative writing class and I was—I thought I was crazy about fiction back then but, and, but now I'm even more crazy about fiction. I don't, like I sold my car so I can read on the tram and I don't, you know, people say to me, you know, oh, oh something, 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 the block and I go, what? what is that like I don't watch television I just I just am more and more in love with books and I know I'm not the only person in love with books I go to I go to writers festivals and and I look out at the audience and all those people are I can see the look in their eye they're similarly obsessed with book people and I just guess I wanted to write a book for them for the it's for the, all the people who are as in love with books as I am. So that was really the idea behind it. I've written a lot of books about science and I still love science. That was kind of my thing before I fell so heavily for
1: fiction. Um, but this was going to be my book about being in love with books. And you really have achieved that. And, and in case people didn't really get the flavour of the book from that rather stumbly introduction, um, let me just reiterate this kind of... it's primarily set in, or well, it begins, I guess, in 1980s Brisbane. Um, you're introduced to Caddy Walker, who is a bookseller and is massively in love with Inga Carlson. In fact, her real name is based on um, Inga's book that is now only existing in fragments um, because it's the remnants of what was kind of gleaned from a fire that destroyed all the rest of the manuscripts. Um, The book then travels back in time to the 1930s when Inga was at her heyday and it sort of starts to focus on someone who you gradually think might be coming into this author's orbit, a young woman called Rachel, um, who is, well, she's, we introduced to her as a girl um, before Inga's time, but you're sort of starting to get a sense that this person will play a role uh, in the big story tell me a little bit more about these like this little kind of journey that you're going on with uh, all of the characters that are that are kind of arrayed here because uh, there's a lot of I don't want to give away too many plot points because it's quite important to sort of unravel these things yourself but I am interested in these different characters and how they are brought together by a single book that is in, in itself not really ever fully seen in the book yeah, well, the three women, Caddy, who's my modern-day
2: sort of amateur detective, bookseller, and the two uh, women, Inga the author and Rachel, um, the three of them are very important to me because it, it's something that I feel that fiction does. I mean, when you think about books and the how predominant they are, certainly in my life and in, in all of our lives, it's black ink on wood pulp as... Um, as has been famously said, it, and yet it conveys so much. This It conveys ideas and, and thoughts and stories and all these things to do with our culture and the way we see the world conveyed on this just bit of paper. It's just the most amazing experience. So these three women who really don't have a lot in common are somehow miraculously brought together um, because of their love for for the written word and how books work in general um, and I loved this idea of communicating across decades. I was also feeling um, really kind of nostalgic toward my youth when I was writing this book um, and you know that's partly why I sent it in Brisbane because I wanted to have that sense of time passing and things that are lost to us and how you know, we think about things that are of of the past in a nostalgic way when they played a significant part um, in in our life. And those books about books, it, it's quite a genre, really. And I think about the ones that I've loved so much. And specifically, I think about *Possession*, which by A.S. Byatt, which I've always adored. And I also think about *The Shadow of the Wind* by Carlos Ruiz Rui Zafón. I want to say, um, and how great the very different both books about books very different in style and tone but this
1: amazing paying tribute to something that's so important to us yeah look it's it's a really I guess it's one of those things that as a book obsessive myself I can really relate to I think there have definitely been times when you think I really need to read the next book by that author because I can't stand to not you know have more of this world all the books that you read over and over and over again because they the cadence and tone is something you want to dwell inside of so I think really you know you are capturing something that's a very real and quite visceral experience and that kind of book worship we've talked a little bit about um you know bibliophilia on this show and you know that kind of quite it's specific love of the object, not just actually the words, but I think you know the, the characters in this book are very definitely looking for meaning and and the words that are lost. There's that great sense of what happens when a book is is literally burnt. So you know, there's a little bit of an underlying metaphor here about you know the the loss of of literature or the you know what that might mean. Definitely, yeah. I wanted to draw something in here. Um, that I'm always really fascinated by when people are writing historical fiction. Uh, And you've got two levels of history here because actually you're delving back into the 1980s and then you're going further back in time and place to, you know, New York and and other parts of America in the 1930s and earlier. How have you kind of wound in the details that you've gleaned from those periods to to give that sort of a sense of authenticity without kind of going overboard? I think... um
2: the not going overboard is something that's very important, and it's very important to me. And part of the way I do that, I think, is I leave all the research to the end. Um, I've realised that research is really a, a rabbit hole that you can get lost down and never, never stick your head up again. And you, you just get so fascinated. And the more you get fascinated, the more you think about things that, oh my God, that's so interesting. I have to include that. Even if it doesn't quite fit, I think that's the danger. So I always, I've got a little habit now of doing reverse research. So I write the draft um, and put things where they are and imagine things. And then I kind of highlight the bits as I go through that really need to need some basis in in fact and then I go back and dig up those specific things then I I don't feel I'm forced to use something just because it was hard one or fascinating I'm only using the things that really belong there and I think that's a far better way for me
1: it definitely shows and I think you've you've you know you've really given enough color to make it feel real enough kind of thing you know something to really ground things in without Ladening the the text with these vast descriptions that that kind of really take you out of what's happening. One of the things I always love about your work, Tony, is your your real ear for dialogue. You've just got a real sense of the you know the modes and cadences of speech, and I think your characters feel so real as a result of that that you manage to channel voices uh, in a way that I find kind of slightly uh, uncanny. How do you do that? Are you someone who just overhears and jots down things as you go through your day-to-day life? or
2: Well, I am. I'm a big eavesdropper. I think that's very important and that's another benefit from catching public transport because it allows so many fantastic opportunities for um, eavesdropping. I had one in the cafe on Sunday morning where there was two women, young women at a table next to me and they were talking about a party the night before and one of them said to the other... Um, I haven't, I hadn't seen anyone wear that since the nineties. And the other woman said, I was wearing it ironically. (laughs) And I thought that was so like perfect. I'm going to have to use that somewhere. So I do do a lot of eavesdropping, but for me, character comes from dialogue. I, have, I don't have a clue about who these people are until I hear them speak. And once I hear them speak in my head and I get the sentences right, that's how I kind of know who they are. So again, it's a reverse process, I think, from the way you'd normally think about character. Normally someone would think about exactly who this people, person is and then how they speak as a reflection of that. And I almost do it the other way around. I hear them speak first and by listening to them speak, I can intuit what kind of person they are.
1: That's really important. If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. am Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Tony Jordan about her latest book, The Fragments, which is a literary crime mystery book lovers kind of <laughs> affair it's a wonderful thing and you know I really wanted to talk a bit more about you know some of the elements of the book that that I particularly loved which uh, you know there is a love story in here I don't know that we can talk too much about it without giving the entire game away but you do particularly write that sort of growth of affection between people in it you know very very beautifully. But
2: Isn't that the best fun? I just (laughs) think that's the best fun. I've got I've had love stories in every single book and I just find that so amazing that that idea of your eyes awaken to somebody else, especially sometimes if it's someone you've known for a little while and your eyes awaken to them and you see them new and the fact that you see them new, you see yourself new and you become a slightly different person when you're with them and that whole dynamic of possibilities opening up and seeing the beauty in people, I've never really... This is only a recent occurrence in my life. I was for a long time one of these people who kind of looked down at beauty and I was not a like I was like the inner person rather than the outer person. And now I've realised that beauty is very important and it's but it's the labels that we ascribe to beauty is the thing that is so oppressive, not the thing of beauty themsel- itself. So I, I try to now... I'm aware of beauty hiding in more things and the idea that someone who is another human, like you pass 100 anonymous ones every day and one suddenly develops this sense of attraction about them and that's a growing, dawning realisation. Oh, my God, that person, that specific person. It's just so exciting to me. It's just the most beautiful thing and it's something I really love exploring.
1: Yeah. And absolutely, I felt though um, to be completely honest that there that there were a couple of love stories in here because really Caddy Walker is in love with Inga yes, as well very um, much. and she 's trying to divine this person behind the fragments and I think that is kind of what we do in the act of reading isn 't it because it 's such a deeply personal thing particularly fiction because unlike non-fiction it is entirely the work of someone's mind it's come from their impressions the absolutely, things that have absolutely yeah. absolutely
2: but it's also in the mind of the reader so you know it's not like going to the movies where you sit in your chair and you see the entirety of someone else's vision exactly as it appears on the screen in front of you And you you see what everyone looks like and you hear what everyone sounds like like every single novel is actually a film that's being directed inside the head of the reader so every novel is half writer and half reader and that's why there's no novel that is the same for any two people and you you can read something at a specific point in your life and and think it's wonderful because it's perfect for you then and then you read it earlier or later and you go why why did I like that so much because it's it's literally a different book because you're literally a different person so this idea of people being linked through time by work people reaching new understandings of themselves because of work I like this idea of people's lives being unlocked like both of the women in this book Rachel and Caddy have kind of narrow lives and it's the work, that the the fiction that open enables them to open up and see the world differently. I love all those interplay um, between books and people.
1: Yeah, it's really fantastic. I did want to ask one more question about craft though because this is kind of, I guess, labelled a crime and a lot of your books have got very detailed plot structures and there's mystery involved and there's, you know, um, I think sometimes you're you know termed a romance writer I think you know it's such a complicated thing when people are putting umbrella labels on diverse work but I really feel as though there is an art uh, and a craft I've certainly tried to work on plot myself and it's not an easy thing to do how did you kind of work with a kind I guess a crime plot in this in this sense or a little bit of a mystery plot? Well the the first thing I did very important was
2: Take the pressure of the ending off myself. So it has got a twist at the end, but it's, it's, I, I'm, this book is going to be read by, I think, people who love books as much as me. And people who love books as much as me, you know. I'm not going to be at all surprised if they saw this ending coming. It's not the kind of ending that makes you go, oh, my God, I had no idea that that was... It's the kind of... It's the natural conclusion of where that story is going. So if people tell me that they saw that coming, that doesn't worry me at all because they're in on, on it with me. The readers are the kind of people that I would be if I was reading this book, and they're the kind of people who love books, so they understand that that's where this story is going. So... Yes, it has a twist at the end, but it's not kind of an unforeseeable twist. It's more like a twist of, I wonder how she's going to pull this off kind of feeling. Um, And, you know, crime is not as hard as I imagined it would be because you can't go back and put the clues in when you're finished. So that was because you read it forward. You know, I'm reading a Jane Harper and I go, how did she do that? You know, she thinks about it, then she goes back and pops Mm. the clues in. So it's actually not as hard as it it would seem. Um, But... It, the ending is kind of I don't want to say predictable but I want people to think I wonder how she's going to smooth this out and make this happen.
1: Well you've certainly made it feel effortless Tony which is one of your very very <laughs> great skills and abilities. But
2: you know I'm like a duck now <laughs> I'm coasting over the surface of the water on the top and my little legs are going
1: underneath. Absolutely <laughs> I, I do know the work that goes into this and I think um, but the result is is endlessly readable. Thank you so much, Tony Jordan. Such a pleasure to have you in the studio and just around, generally, um, producing fine books and being a wonderful human being. Thanks, Mel. Uh, you're listening to Backstory on Three Triple R, and I've just been talking to Tony Jordan, author of The Fragments, which is out now through Text Publishing.
3: Three triple.
1: You're listening to 3RRR's Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. From publishing in the age of Trump to Amazon's disruption of the book industry, the Small Press Network's independent publishing conference will be working through some of the major issues facing our local publishers. The three-day conference runs from the 22nd to the 24th of November and joining me to talk about the fascinating program is Small Press Network General Manager Tim Coronel and the event's keynote speaker Copyright expert Dr Rebecca Giblin Tim and Rebecca, welcome to Backstory
3: Hi Mel, how are you?
1: I'm very well, how are you both?
3: I'm a bit croaky oh,
1: Yes, it's that time of year I definitely think hay fevery all around
3: Yes, Rebecca copped a plane tree in the eye on the way Just the a minute. bit
0: of a plane tree, but it was plenty of plane
3: tree in the eye <laughs>
1: Now, I am really fascinated by the program uh, for this conference. There's a lot of things to cover and there's, you know, we should start, I think, with something that a lot of people are talking about across the publishing industry right now, which is the great big, I guess, disruptor of all industries. Um... Amazon, which The elephant in the room. The elephant in... The, mm-hmm. the large, large elephant in the room. That you've had something of a coup. You've managed to get a, a Glenn Jones from Amazon Australia to join the conference. That's actually a really kind of, you know, heartening development because it means that, I guess, uh, publishers can directly speak or listen to what Glenn has to say and maybe weigh in on that.
3: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, my colleague, Matthew Dempsey, who's programmed the conference, said almost jokingly, oh, it'd be great if we got someone from Amazon. And we all went, ah, ha, ha, we're not going to get anyone from Amazon. <laughs> and we asked around, and it took quite a bit of asking to actually get a name. So it's like, who do you actually talk to at Amazon? And we went, oh, I just emailed them. Oh, I don't know. I've never spoken to a human. And eventually we got a name and we emailed Glenn and said, would you like to participate? And he went, yeah, sure. See, that's great. So it's just um, one of those things. So I'm, really, I'm actually chairing the session that he's um, on about distribution, and I'm really interested to meet him and hear what he has to say.
1: It's a really interesting one because I suppose, you know, we've talked about there's all sorts of things that we could go into with, like, parallel imports and how, you know, a big international uh, book distributor can really disrupt local industries and it's a delicate balance because obviously you know getting the international reach is one thing but the fear is that the local industry will be swamped with with international work and you know we don't want to lose that we have such a rich uh, local publishing industry what kinds of things are you going to be grilling him on
3: it is a double-edged sword and i i think you know The book industry as a whole is is wary of Amazon. We're wary of its its market power and its dominance. But on the other hand, particularly for small publishers, it is an essential route to market. Um, And with the recent collapse of Dennis Jones and Associates, which was the main distributor for small publishers in Australia, they need more and more um, a way to get people to know about their books. And if people are looking for books on Amazon, then more and more books need to be on Amazon. So it's a a compromise that publishers have to make. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to Glenn about that, about access for small publishers, whether there are barriers for small publishers to, to deal with such a large company. Um, whether they need intermediaries, whether they can do it themselves, uh, all those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a really fascinating discussion. And I I think, you know, for some people, cutting out the the middle person is not necessarily considered to be a bad thing, especially for smaller entities. But, you know, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see just exactly what that uh, discussion produces.
3: Exactly. And the other panellist on that session is uh, a newly appointed distribution manager for Booktopia, which is Australia's biggest uh, online book selling site Um, and so they've actually, I mean Booktopia deals with as many different publishers and distributors as it can but clearly they've seen uh, an opening to actually be a distributor themselves Um, and they're also, they're planning to actually distribute books back to other bricks and mortar bookshops.
1: Rebecca, you're going to be talking about a topic that I actually am deeply fascinated by. And whenever I bring up copyright law, I'm sure everyone that I know has a bit of an eye glaze moment, but it is a incredibly important and I think under addressed topic um, and one that I'm, I'm really passionate about discussing because with copyright particularly for producers of art uh, obviously comes you know the right to earn money uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that I believe you are the keynote speaker at this conference and I, I want to talk to you about how you're addressing things like artists rights within the, the book publishing industry.
0: My research focuses particularly on authors' rights and how we can give better effect to them. We have a really interesting situation in Australia where, as people might have noticed, every time we talk about copyright, we have authors sort of out there fair and squarely at the centre of this equation but in fact, in Australia, we don't have any express author rights in our law. Uh, and that's different to how the way in which lots of other countries do it, particularly in Europe. But even in um, the US and Canada as well, there are other rights that we've got. So my research is looking at um, we've got certain realities in, in uh, the publishing world that we have to acknowledge. We see that authors' incomes are really declining. Um, and it does seem that the proportion of people who are able to make a, a living as a professional writer writer has just been plummeting over the last 15 years. And in large part, that's because the the supplementary jobs that writers used to have to pay the bills are largely disappearing. So freelance writing for magazines and newspapers, for example. At the same time, if you look at the economics of small press publishing, um, it, it sort of also doesn't make any sense. Uh, There's very little money uh, in publishing these really important Australian stories, but it's still vital that they get told. So we've got these realities where the money is spread very thin all around, and we have to really think about, well, what sorts of rights should authors have, um, given those realities, and how can we give effect to those in a way that works for publishers and helps us uh, keep and even um, improve this really vital uh, local publishing industry that we've got? And so, some of the the interesting rights that um, we can play with, and that are that are of a lot of interest, are things like authors' rights of reversion—the their right to get their rights back because almost all publishing contracts last for the entire lifetime of the copyright. And that could be 100 years, 120 years from now. And lots of them also take rights uh, very extensively, but also for the, in, um, the entire world. And so uh, the way author protective laws work in other countries, for example, is there, there might be a law that says use it or lose it. So if the publisher takes the worldwide rights, they don't exploit it within two years, then the author has the right to get those back. Um, there's also um, a really interesting law in France. This one's particularly interesting because it was created in 2014. It's just for publishing contracts, so it really is designed to target the realities of this industry at the moment. Um, And it's like an out-of-print clause, the way we might find one in the contract. It just says, if the book's been published for at least four years and there hasn't been any payment to the author or credit against an advance for at least two they can get their rights back. And so one of the things our research is exploring is the possibility for introducing that sort of re- reversion right into Australia as a right of the author to then open up new possibilities for um, publishers to exploit reverted rights. Uh, text Text classics, Michael Haywood's text classic series is a really terrific example mm. of how you can breathe new life into a book um, you know, after it's gone out of print originally. But also, it's really just to um, reflect the realities that a lot of the contracts that currently govern authors' rights are just not fit for purpose at the moment. Um, if you think about it, a contract that was signed in 1960, just imagine what that looks like, yellowing, very short, often. Um, it's created at a time, you know, well before the digital era. It hasn't provided for any kind of eventualities around ebooks. Those contracts still govern relationships for authors today, because uh, and even if the author Immediately died the second they signed that contract, it's still uh, covering a copyright that exists today because that's how long it is. So, we really do need to start thinking about how do we have uh, appropriate rights for authors that genuinely protect their interests while still working within the publishing industry that we've got today. And
3: reversion has actually become more complex in the digital era Mm. because it was reasonably common for authors to get their rights back when a book went out of print, but in the digital realm, a book theoretically is never out of print as long as the publisher is prepared to to maintain an e-book presence. So that complicates things as well.
0: That's right, because a clause might be drafted that says it's um, not out of print if it exists in any edition. Now, even if that contract was drafted well before the e-book era, then an e-book is still an edition. Um, And some contracts I've seen even say that it's not out of print Uh, even if there is an e-book edition so some newer ones try and say e-book is enough Um, and so really thinking about what best practice is uh, is important here and and authors organizations have been uh, calling for some objective measure given that we now live in a world where nothing needs to be out of print what is a, a fair objective measure that might allow us to work that out and it might be for example all right a book is out of print if we haven't paid you $100 royalties or credited that against your advance in the last twelve months,
1: could there also be perhaps like a, you know sunset clauses as well on contracts where you know you're signing up with a publisher for a period of you know of time and you can renew that contract? Is that something that's being explored?
0: Well, as I said, um, publishers nearly universally a traditional publisher um, that is doing a print book will nearly universally require rights to be transferred for the entire lifetime of the contract uh, of the copyright. But we do see a different approach in the United States, for example, where uh, All creators, including book authors, have a statutory right to terminate their contracts after 35 years. So the longest a contract can last for is 35 years if the author decides to terminate it. And so that's another really interesting possibility to think about, well, has the publisher uh, got enough opportunity to recoup their investment and make a fair profit after a certain amount of time and should the bit that's left go to the author to again not only help get them paid but also free those rights up for other investment by people who think that they can breathe life into them that's not there at the moment.
1: You've just joined us. You're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple I'm talking to the small press publishing networks, Tim Coronel, and uh, you've just been hearing uh, Dr. Rebecca Giblin, who is a copyright expert, talking about a really underexplored area, I think, which is author rights, which don't currently exist uh, in Australia and Uh, of more importance now that it is the internet age and and books are never out of print, uh, so to speak, in terms of digital print, I guess. I do just want to step into a slightly uh, different... area but also to do with your uh, small press publishing network and that is the most underrated book award uh, talking about underrated and unsung things this is one of my favorite awards I have to be completely honest Uh, quite often a book that I am very annoyed hasn't been honored in any of the the you know other awards and to say mainstream awards now seems spurious because there are so many and such diverse ones talk to me a little bit about this award where it Started and where it's going now.
3: Sure. So it started ooh, five, maybe six years ago, um, as an initiative from the Small Press Network to precisely do that—to identify titles that um, just hadn't got the recognition that that they deserve. And it always happens. There are so many books published that there are ones that, that slip through the cracks. Um, so we aim to, in, in, you know, get people thinking about the shortlist. This year there are three shortlisted titles, really diverse, interesting books, which I can talk a bit more about in a sec, Um, and hopefully to get um, that shortlist and the eventual winner some media attention, get bookshops thinking about them uh, and, yeah, just get them a a bit more attention that that they deserve. Um, Last year's winner, um, The Invisible War, was a really good example. It was a a graphic novel, a graphic non-fiction book um, about the First World War. It started with the people, with the soldiers and the nurses, um, but then it actually went inside their bodies and talked about infection and, and typhus and TB and and cholera Um, and so it became this science book about the insides of people uh, and how they suffered internally during the war from their illnesses Uh, and that book had trouble finding a spot in the market Um, and then after winning the MOBA last year the Australian edition sold out, they sold uh, US distribution rights so it's being distributed in the US, Um, it's just been a huge success for them.
0: And was it the year before that, Tim, that uh, Jane Rawson won for a wrong turn at the Office of Unmade Lists? I think that was
3: the year before, before. Yes.
0: That's, I, have you read that one, Mel? That's one of I have my read absolute
3: favourites. I
0: have to say I have a great
3: affection for Jane Rawson and all she writes. <laughs> yeah, so. we, we were talking Jane up on the tram, so yeah. yeah
0: anyone else on the 96 is also going out to buy Jane's book, but yeah, if you like a bit of dystopic fiction set in Melbourne with a little turn into magic realism. That one is just terrific. And
1: I have to say, Jane Rawson has turned me on to some very peculiar writing that I absolutely adore. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about awards, though, as a, a general topic, because, uh, you know, this most underrated book award sort of you know you're like do we need another award and I guess you know unfortunately a lot of people buy books the way they buy wine which is they want that you know they the want sticker. the gold sticker on mm-hmm. the front and so it does make a very big difference to the potential you know the potential earnings of a, of a writer which means that they can continue to write the success of a book having this kind of imprimatur on it from you know a panel of judges that have said this is a great book we have chosen it for you it's kind of one of those, I guess, necessary evils in the market, especially when people are time poor, books are a commitment of time and they want to have some sort of a sense of what they're getting. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested in what you think the ethos is in, in choosing the books um, behind this. When you're selecting judges to judge these books, who are you looking for to kind of you know, raise these these books up a little.
3: We've had um, three great judges for the last couple of years who are, are actually going to stand down. So, if anyone out there wants to be a judge next year, get in touch. So, um, Tony Jordan, who I ran into um, exiting the building as we were entering, uh, Sarah Lestrange from the ABC, and Megan O'Brien from Brunswick Bound Bookshop have been our judges for the last couple of years. Um, and they've done a great job of sifting through. Uh, all the entries, getting um, a really interesting shortlist together uh, and then helping us to to promote and encourage the the take-up of those books.
1: Mm. One thing that's not often talked about, I think, with awards, and I've been on on judging panels of of a few awards, and Quite often you rely on the publisher to actually send the book in. Oh, definitely, yeah. uh, Is that necessarily the case here? Because or are you encouraging judges to request books so that you can get those books that maybe, uh, unfortunately, publishers aren't backing? It can be both.
3: Um, we send a call out, obviously, to our publisher members, asking them to submit titles. There have been... she the winner the year before last, I think, was a book that was called in by the judges because it wasn't entered... Um, So, um, yeah, both is the the short answer. I mean, the other thing we can fly our flag about with the Small Press Network is just how much smaller publishers are being recognised in awards. Mm. Um, Every award shortlist and and winner that comes out, they're going to have books on them from Giramondo, from UWA Press, from Affirm Press, from Transit Lounge, who are all SBN members.
1: The the Lifted Brow as well. Lifted Brow. Brow
3: books, yeah. um, And... um, uh, Emmett Stinson, who was one of the speakers at our academic day, has been doing research into how you know smaller publishers are overrepresented in awards.
1: They really are. I mean, lists. we've even seen, uh, I suppose, internationally, we've seen as far up as the the Booker Prize. I guess uh, we're seeing that representation. It is really important, and and you know, I guess talking to you um, about the the small press network and and the Independent Publishing Conference, uh, it, it's so important to have a thriving local. Uh, independent industry because they're the ones that take risks on books that are often overlooked by bigger publishers that are looking for a return on their investment that's kind of surefire. So you don't necessarily get that, uh, you know, you don't necessarily get the books that, uh, that you'd like to have that are maybe not yet tested in the market, that haven't gotten a proven sort of I guess, formula behind them. So it's really wonderful to to see that you're out there doing what you're doing and using the combined force of independent publishing to to get stuff done.
3: Yeah, and it's a complex ecosystem because small publishers and their authors rely on funding bodies often to be able to get their books out there. Funding bodies rely on there being a large enough market to generate money back. So the copyright agencies, cultural fund... um, you know, delivers a lot of money back into the industry based on the fees that it, it collects from, uh, usually from large universities and libraries, which is more Rebecca's field. So, yeah, it's a very complicated world uh, that we live in.
1: Well, I would love to continue to talk to you about these topics. They're very big ones, and I'm sure that we will have an opportunity to talk more about them later. But uh, tell us about the when the conference is happening and whether people can still sign up.
3: Uh, definitely. So it's uh, next Thursday, Friday and Saturday, 22nd to 24th uh, at the Wheeler Centre. Um, tickets start from – I had it up here and I've lost it sorry about that, Uh, $141 for students and concessions. Uh, There are three days. The Thursday is Academic Research Day where Rebecca is the keynote speaker. Friday is the Industry Day where our keynote speaker is, I've forgotten her name, she's coming from the States, from Saraband Books. Uh, And on Saturday... um, we call a fundamentals day, really a, a training day for people new to the publishing industry. Uh, and Zoe Datner, who is the founder of SBN and the uh, co-founder of Sleepers Publishing, is going to be the keynote speaker on the Saturday.
0: And have we got a hashtag for people who just want to follow along? Sure, it's slash
3: indpubcon. Uh has been CONF in the past, but uh, the word has come on down that it's in pub con, is it? Mm, controversial. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, keep an eye out for that. Uh, I'd like to thank you both for coming in today. It's uh, been a great pleasure to talk to you, and I'm sure something uh, that people will be fascinated by if they're interested in the publishing industry or writing.
3: Definitely. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Mel. Thank
1: you so much. Uh, That was uh, Tim Coronel from the Small Press Network and Rebecca Giblin, who is a copyright expert who will be the keynote speaker at the upcoming Independent Publishing Conference. Uh, You've heard the dates and... uh, the website i might put that up online for you so that you can get along i'd like to thank all of my guests obviously including the lovely tony jordan who came on earlier uh, talking about the fragments her latest book which is out now through text publishing
3: this has been a podcast from free triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent
2: community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at
1: rrr.org.au. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon.